Welcome, everybody, to the 41st edition of the Light Shed Podcast. I'm Brandon Ross, along with Walter Pysik and the great Richard Greenfield. <laughs> and um, I What a song, Brandon. You crushed well, you, it this week. No, you know what? Um, I'm actually not that big of a Beatles guy, and I know that was the second, <laughs> actually the second Beatles song in two weeks, but um, I couldn't help it because that song as probably most people listening know, is is Lennon's questioning of kind of the goals and um, tactics around an, an earlier movement. And we've been talking about this kind of retail slash Main Street um, stock movement over the past several weeks. And it really came to a head this week, guys. And... I, I, that's and putting it lightly. Just, I, mean, yeah, I think that's I, understated way of describing <laughs> what's happened over the last few days, Brandon. But there's a whole bunch of different narratives um, and themes that we could unpack uh, around what what happened, headlined by GameStop and AMC and Nokia. And I don't know. Maybe do you want to just pull up uh, the first slide where we have? Sure. I think kind of three um, uh, tweets and. Uh, I'll just read them off. The first is from the Washington Post, which says GameStop and AMC surge after Reddit users lead chaotic revolt against the big Wall Street funds. And let me just stop you for a second. While while this podcast is going on, G- GME GameStop is up 140 percent um, and AMC is up 63 percent. So this is still very much true even today. Yeah, um, we're we're still right in the thick of it. Um, and look, the, I think that Washington Post narrative there talking about a revolt against big Wall Street funds. I think, you know, part of this plays into the populist movement that we've seen surrounding Trump um, and other ideas, even decentralization, uh, Bitcoin. But Robinhood might be the most aptly named app ever. No, I know. And I could I couldn't resist using that background again. But at the end of the day, guys, this is still for most people, mostly about money and making a quick buck. I've gotten, I don't know, probably tens of of text messages every day from people I barely know. And they don't really want my perspective on what's happening, like what the systemic risks are, actually why. Um, you know, Robin Hood may have stopped trading yesterday. It's all been the same question. Can I make money by buying AMC uh, um, or GameStop? And if I own them, should I sell them now? And I've pretty much, you know, <laughs> not um, really given my advice. Um, but dude, at the end of the day, this is like 90% 
about money. It's no different than what happens. Right. This is not about the, the, Brent, this the is early not about the 2000s yeah, on, no. on, on Yahoo message boards. I don't even think it's, it's not just that it's not about the companies. I think that it's, it's not really about much of any broader movement. I mean, it may have started that way, but that's 90%. Uh, not what it is. People are jumping on the bandwagon because they think they can make a quick buck by doing this, regardless of the ethics of it, regardless of who it ha- damages. It's just about can I can I can I get and make a few dollars this afternoon? Yeah, and I think that a lot of sort of the 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 things that Portnoy and Chamath and others have been talking about Winklevi Winklevi. Um, has also kind of been about their own money and power and and not much more than that. I think like Portnoy himself has been kind of leading this and, you know, famously been buying stocks in his PA and talking about them. Um, well, yesterday, I think th- he was throughout COVID and he, he com- was- and he lost his mind because yesterday stocks were down and it seemed like this was this whole thing was being crushed. What were you going to say, Walt? People can do whatever the hell they want with their money. And maybe the best education that everyone's asking for rather than protection. I mean, we have a tweet up there from AOC saying this is unacceptable. And I think that kind of underscores whether someone needs protection. Other people are saying they need education. I mean, the biggest education that you're going to get is basically losing 80% of your money. And that's going to be very educational. And I think that's what's really scary here is because, you know, what we're seeing is and what we've experienced personally is that as people lose money, they get really angry. Yeah, I mean, that, people are direct that, messaging me saying, say. "Can I re? Can you reimburse me for the money that you lost? You know, that, that you, you know, blaming me for why a stock went down? That they're literally asking for reimbursement and they're threatening. And I think the what what worries me is that you know we're seeing other firms stop doing short research and people are worried about shorting stocks because they're worried for literally their life. I mean, literally threatening. And I think that's sort of the dark underbelly here is that when people start to lose money, they get angry. I mean, we certainly saw, if you look at what happened politically over the last several years, right? People were angry about losing their jobs and they there was a populist uprising in many ways. And I just worry, we saw it in the Capitol too, and we were talking about on this podcast two weeks ago, a riot on the Capitol. I worry about the violent side of this that, you know, as people don't even realize what's going on, as Walt said, if they start losing money, they become violent, and, and that's where this becomes very, very dangerous. And very, very very even if not, vi- even if not, well, yeah. I don't know what happened. Um, I, I don't know what happened at um, Robin, Robin Hood. Hood. And they claim there's there probably there's some capital issue or whatever it is. Maybe there was some nefarious, but you don't have proof, and you're making allegations. And the last time we saw a mob um, and someone making allegations, which was was Rudy Giuliani, and who's being sued for what a billion nine, and, he, now? and he's getting sued. And he's getting sued. Right. Personally getting sued. So, okay. I, I don't know. I mean. <laughs> and obviously on the political side, AOC, Ted Cruz, both trying to kind of like seize the moment with their respective bases because you know, Wall, Wall Street is evil and taking everybody's money. So there must be something nefarious going on. And it's just. Um, it, I. Look, it's it's people want it's just the fascinating thing, too, is like there is this belief right now that stocks only go up and that you shouldn't allow short selling. And I know this has happened before. I mean, 
but there is sort of this belief that you know nobody should ever short stocks. It should be illegal to short stocks because stocks should only go up because that's how people make money. It just it seems very disruptive to the market, um, to the, to but it, the equilibrium. But if, but if but if short selling didn't exist, right, then no one would be making all this money right now. <laughs> That's the irony of all of it. That is look, the yeah, irony of can, all of it. We also back up in, in, in terms of like, look, in co- you're in COVID. Obviously, there's the psychology of this being locked down, being bored. Sports betting, yep. Um, I think plays a role role in this. And you know, maybe politicians will start questioning whether sports betting should expand to every different every one of these different states because it's obviously driving part of this, or it could contribute to part of this culture that exists that is now extended into the stock market. So maybe maybe you should look at maybe sports betting shouldn't expand to all these different states. They promise all these positive things. I just think about Atlantic City and how the casinos promised Atlantic City like how it was going to be great for the for what's going on in Atlantic. Has anyone been to Atlantic City and driven behind the, the casinos? It, it has not it's helped a, that. It's a pretty dark place. Right? It has not right. helped and that you, community. Your point Walt is that if 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 we allow more and more gambling throughout this country you know, people start losing money. Do we start seeing sort of this same threatening and violent behavior in an organized way? <laughs> and, uh, w- um, by the way, I want to take a step back. Now we've taught, we've discussed this quote, th- these threats on this podcast for the last couple of weeks, nowhere in the press or in any narrative has any of this been, been discussed. No, they ignore it. They completely ignore well, the fact they either that, like, ignore it or or don't realize that there is kind of a darker side to what has been going on. But it, look at Carisdale's um, tweet today, which I think you alluded to earlier. They are not going to um, Citron, publish Citron. Citron's not going to do sell research anymore. Oh, Citron, or, right? They're and not Car- going to publish research right. on and Caris- Carisdale was going to do a call on on Fubo today on the fundamentals around it and decided not to because I think the wife of one of the partners shut it down because it was too dangerous. Apparently, yeah. the wife and her boyfriend were getting both getting threats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, this Which is, is cra- it, it's gotten crazy, and, and that's the bottom line. But let's. Um, Look, we're not going to solve this. Uh, no, I we're not. It, but it, at the end of the day, it, it's it's about money, and there's emotions that are around money on both sides of the of the game. Can I just point out one more thing for yep. our listeners on this? Is yep. in terms of sticking it to the man and and the, and the hedge fund managers that are that are doing this stuff. Um, the hedge fund managers have made money in past years, and that 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 they have sitting in their bank accounts. I guess some of it's in the fund as well. Who's invested in these funds are pension funds. So who you're sticking endowments into. endowments yeah, that, that's that's the great and look maybe they shouldn't point. be investing in some of these so I don't know but like you know you have to see the bigger picture here like I, again I, I think I get back to your first point Brandon yeah who are the investors in hedge funds and it's pensions for police officers yeah, and teachers. teachers yeah but whatever like we're not going to point blame one way or another because I think it gets back to your earlier point which is this is just about making money. Like yes. if you're not like, let's say you were sticking it to the man and losing 50% of your portfolio, would you still be sticking it to the man? Fuck no. Like yeah. you're there to make money. Don't, don't like dress it as anything else. And if you're, and you think you're sticking it to the man, actually know who you're sticking it to. Cause it goes well beyond um, the suits or whoever you think that you're, <laughs> that you're, that you're hurting. Let's do some, and we're going to go to the audio tape for Facebook um, had a very un, very surprising and unexpected start 
to their fourth quarter conference call. Orthodox. Uh, Numbers were great. We're not going to talk about numbers. Let's just talk about and listen to for a minute what Mark Zuckerberg said at the very beginning of their conference call. That we increasingly see Apple um, as one of our biggest competitors. iMessage is a key linchpin of their ecosystem. Uh, It comes pre-installed on every iPhone, um, and they've preferenced it with private APIs and permissions, which is is why iMessage is the the most used messaging service in the U.S. Um, And now uh, we are also seeing uh, Apple's business depend more and more on gaining share in apps and services uh, against us and other developers. So Apple has every incentive to use their dominant platform position to interfere with how our apps and other apps work, uh, which they regularly do to preference their own. Um, and this impacts the growth of, of millions of businesses around the world, um, including with the uh, upcoming iOS 14 changes, many small businesses uh, will no longer be able to reach their customers with targeted ads. So that's a pretty, uh, you know, I mean, for me, it's a company that's been under nonstop attack. I mean, if you think about Facebook, the last two and a half years, starting with sort of the whole um, you know, the whole scandal on data privacy. Facebook has had a target on its back, has been in front of Congress multiple times. It seems like a nonstop wave of bad things about Facebook have come out. This feels like a power move to me of Zuckerberg shifting blame of like, hey, there's other really bad companies out there. Apple does some really bad things. Jumping, too. Uh, jumping on the back of kind of Epic's lawsuit. And the target yeah. and the sort of negative sentiment around Apple. But and this is Mark saying, I, I, I hey, we've, we've, I, we're saving small businesses. We're helping them sell products while their stores are closed. We're helping them set up shops. We're the good guy here. Apple, you're the big bad guy over there. You know what, though? I, I think that's probably part of it, Rich. But I, I really do believe that this is at face value about competition and exactly what Mark said there, which, and I guess a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we talked about why the IDFA move was so brilliant for Apple, how it would a weaken Facebook and Google and B um, move more businesses into subscription and away from advertising. And Mark said it right there at face value. Right. I I don't think you can minimize that he's worried about the impact on his business of IDFA. All I know is they're probably still going to grow. And the fact that they are competitors. (laughs) They're still growing 25, 30. I mean, they're talking about 30 plus percent growth in the first half, even as IDFA starts to kick in. And they're okay. still talking probably about 25% plus growth well, even after it. They, so they, Well, they haven't really talked about growth after. And I think it's, it's naive to kind of make a call on the exact impact of that IDFA is going to have. Because honestly, it sounds like Facebook doesn't necessarily know. And we've discussed it with so many different investors and industry participants. And everyone, a lot of smart people kind of have a different take. I think it's true. Kind of the we, messaging we were, we were by Facebook was probably worst case scenario because Facebook always um, guides extremely conservatively on any of the metrics um, that they guide on. But they have to be worried that there's some impact. It's a, impossible to ignore that. Let me go back to your, your earlier statement, though, in terms of him 
uh, Zuckerberg trying to frame this as good versus bad. Look, in politics, I mean, a lot of times antitrust, whatever it is, which is in some, in many ways, political, you're right. It yeah. does come back down to a who's good versus who who's bad versus the, the facts of what's happening. So I thought it was interesting that Cook, following these comments, highlighted about you know, conspiracy theories that have been on certain platforms and privacy that's been on certain platforms. So if this ends up being a proxy for good versus bad, who do you think is going to be perceived as the good company versus the bad company in terms of Apple versus Facebook? Yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) your point is, is Apple's just has the perception in the consumer's eye of like, Apple's just a good company historically and they help your life whereas facebook is being sort of seen from a consumer perspective of like what's the true consumer benefit of facebook is that sort of the angle wants to play if he wants to play the card of good versus bad if we acknowledge it this is this type of stuff that you know sometimes drives even how antitrust even though it should always be based on the facts you know things have to be brought forward. Well, everything's political and driven right. by so, votes so at which the end level, of the day, so right? So to- consumer perception because sure. it's voter perception um, does does matter. But so, yeah, so which lever did Tim positioning Cook for where this goes? Okay, so I, see what I, I ask you again, when Tim Cook no, no, no. the privacy and allowing conspiracy theories on your platform versus IDFA, which no one even understands what that is, which one do you think actually <laughs> is going to resonate? Right. Your, your point is, is at the end of the day, even if you even if this is all a PR scheme, at the end of the day, the PR scheme is a very tough one to win when you've got a company that consumers truly love and have, you know, the pitch of privacy is just so strong, even though it may be bullshit and it may actually be, you know, competitively harmful to small businesses. It's, it's a very hard relative pitch. to Apple. Apple does, sure. I think, a lot of things in terms of protecting privacy for their for their consumers. Yep. I look, bottom line is I actually think from a, I think when you look at what Google's been trying to do to kind of work around the end of cookies, I actually think this is going to be far less impactful for companies with first party data. I think the the real harm of all of this is that it's going to make, not only does it make Apple stronger, it makes Facebook stronger, it makes Google stronger. And I think it really damages everybody else. I think it's it's the, the smaller players that are just going to get run over um, in this world that it's going to be much, much more difficult for companies that don't have good data uh, on their own customers. And that's that's really going to be the, the main Spe- takeaway. Especially digital content that's reliant sure. on, on the on the ad ecosystem. That's it. But that's who's going to get hurt. The Let's most. talk about WWE. We've got okay. um, a big yeah. deal, Brandon. I mean, this was big news. You've been waiting for for an entire year, I think. Yep. I guess I'll read the, the tweet from John O'Rant, which is WWE Network is moving to Peacock in March. Deal runs for five years and is worth more than a billion dollars. And I think what's most interesting about this and what we really focused on when we wrote about this this week is that WWE was kind of the first, um, I would call it tra- traditional media company to um, over the top and direct to consumer. They were really focused on it. Uh, they were able to build up to what 1.8 million paid subscribers. At what point? At one point, they've talked about the benefits of data, and they, and and they were going to three to four, how, right? Right. The goal how was to was, get to three to four. It was how it was going to change their business, though. And guess what? They wound up giving up. And I think the lesson here is that direct to consumer is really hard. It takes um, real 
technology infrastructure and infrastructure that is you know not necessarily available to a company of this size um whether it's from a recruiting perspective or a dollars perspective and that a lot of the ways that they were hoping to quote follow netflix um were just not practical um from an execution point of view and i think you're going to probably see more of this in the future right now everyone is is all about every traditional media company has some sort of over the top um streaming strategy and i think most of them aren't going to really work out and we're going to be left with sort of an oligopoly at the top um i think the for me the question though i'm more like i guess that what i keep thinking about brandon is netflix is going to spend 17 and a half billion dollars on content this year they are creating all forms of content for you know you name it they're creating that content i mean other than sports and news they're doing every vertical of content all over the globe in every single country around the world is the goal even movies and tv i think the question that we have to think about is like wwe is not going to be the last company to give up i mean they're the first company exactly. to give up so exactly. the question is like as we think about it like does Peacock give up? Does Paramount Plus give up? Does Discovery Plus give up? Like, who's giving up? Like, you know, we've got things like Shutter from AMC, right? Like, we've got all these niche platforms. Uh, Crunchyroll was just sold by AT&T. Like, who's going to realize that there's more money to be made by licensing your content than by Becoming actually trying dealer. to compete? Yeah. Yeah, I think that outside for a while, at the beginning, outside of really Netflix and Amazon, there there wasn't that greater streaming war for every kind of piece of content that was going to work in over the top. And now there um, there's a lot of companies that need content and the smart ones that can't compete are going to sell off in an accretive fashion. And then eventually, I think the middle tier players won't be able to compete either. And they'll either wind up consolidating and also selling out to, to the top. I mean, you've been talking about cross subsidization, I think probably since I first met you in terms of like, that's what the power well, of bundling it's just is. the power of, of the bundle in general. Right. And so Netflix in many ways is a bundle because of so much diverse content. Disney's, you know, I think they're working towards creating one product. I mean, hopefully we're right. And Hulu does get um, kind of sold off by Comcast and fully controlled by Disney sooner than later. And, and so that this partnership ends so that they can create sort of putting one a lot product. of content together into a yes. bundle offers value for everybody. And gives you bigger TAM, lower churn, more engagement, more pricing power. That's, That's the right. Netflix playbook. Everyone's copying it. And, you know, I think if we look at the next slide, just because I think it's kind of speaks to this is, you know, if you think about what HBO is trying to do, I think in many ways this quarter, um, you know, where they broke, you know, they got up to 41 million subscribers, uh, which is a, you know, I think a, a, a better number than basically anyone other than, we, you know, we, we were forecasting over 40. They did over 41 million. I think that really surprised people in terms of the impact of putting new release movies day and date on the service. We've got a slide up here. Um, Zack Schneider's Justice League premieres March 18th exclusively on HBO Max, the Snyder Cut. So like they are just, you know, everywhere we look, we're hearing more and more about HBO Max spending more on big projects, you know, 20, 25 million dollars an episode doing movies, doing things like the Schneider Cut. Like 
they seem to really understand that there needs to be a wide diversity of content. I think actually tonight, um, I think it's called Little Things. I forget the exact name of the movie. Uh, but there's a new movie. The second movie after Wonder Woman hits HBO Max today. And again, all different budgets, all different styles of movies, but they're all day and date on HBO Max. And it looks like it's working. And I, I mean, look, I, I'm more confident. You know, I know we were debating kind of when we were doing the 21 for 21, what we thought that sort of the HBO Max number could be. And, you know, we, we decided on 50 million. I tell you, looking at sort of the trend lines, 50 million seems like it won't be that hard at all now. No, they grew what twenty percent year over year this year. Another yeah. twenty, another twenty percent from here is fifty million, and and the offering is going to be far more compelling this this year in twenty twenty one than it was in twenty twenty with all of those sort of first window movies available. You think AT and T people were surprised? Investors, well. Stocked it okay, but you know this, the market was a little squirrely this week, right? And it is a shorted stock, so who knows? Yeah, I just, I just find that how many people are so skeptical of HBO Max despite the project. Like, I just think people do not believe they have the staying power to continue to invest, and at least so far, it looks like at least oh. it's working. So we'll see. Um, moving on, next slide is the FCC. Take well, it away, Walt. <laughs> this is a tweet by Hank Holquist from AT&T saying, rather than uh, having yet another proceeding, maybe we should just put a net neutrality on and off switch in the office of the FCC chair, perhaps like a button. And basically, it's, you know, this, we all remember under Chairman Wheeler, um, the pressure that people, protesters had, a, had blockaded his car inside his house. There was vocal... Um, you know, very vocal the mob. And, that was mob behavior. Yeah, last that was time. the first version of the mob. Um, and then, and then when Pi flipped it the other way, his family was getting death threats. So I guess Rosenworcel may take this on. I mean, look, the way to get around this is through legislation, which even during the Wheeler era, you know, there was, there was an attempt um, to try and figure out something like that. So it's permanent. So we're not flipping it back and forth, but right. one thing seems to be clear is the internet continues to work. And, um, <laughs> Under whoever, whatever the fear mongering is on either side, doesn't seem like any of that fear mongering has actually uh, materialized. And, and, um, and but and I would assume you believe, changes. but I would assume you believe we're going to have net neutrality regulation this year. I mean, that would, I assume with, sure. with Congress flipping, it's highly likely that's going to happen. Sure. But, but uh, remember, under Wheeler's reign um, at the FCC, there was no rate regulation. It was, you yeah. know, that was forbeared as the saying goes um, or as the word is is which basically means that there is no price regulation so you can call it net neutrality by name but if it doesn't if you're not regulating the rates which are the arpus of these companies are going up because they're saying like hey take a faster speed get a higher arpu and then the lower rate plans just happen to disappear <laughs> um you know that's i don't think that that's really going to be in the cards but we'll see they have not named um, a permanent chair it could be Rosenworcel, it could be Someone new. Um, so we'll have to see how that progresses. So for so anyone to know. claim to know for certain which way it's going, I mean, again, there's, you know, things change. Politics move very quickly. I mean, like, you know, maybe we get, you know, going back to our very first topic, maybe we get regulation um, of Wall Street that's new because of, you know, what happened. So and when and when people say, you know, hey, it's clear from the pandemic that broadband's now a lifeline service the way telephone used to be. 
and therefore it should be regulated. What do you think the best pushback against that's going to be? It's going to be competition and funding broadband build out. I mean, you know, they've talked about tens of billions of dollars in in, um, broadband um, build out and competition. Um, which I think is a good segue. In, in That's exactly topic. why I wanted to bring it up. I wanted to segue right into this slide, Walt. And this is um, this is a tweet from Mike uh, Dano from, I think, Light Reading now, uh, who does a great job. There are indications that cable sat out of the C-band auction. And what he's referencing is that on the Comcast earnings call yesterday, um, I believe it was the CFO was really emphasizing, and maybe even Brian, uh, a CapEx light strategy. And Charter, I think, said the same thing where they said wireless CapEx will be de minimis. And I think Rutledge said it was like a 2021 and 2022 event. So the translation that everyone's looking at that is, well, that must mean they didn't buy any C-band spectrum. So this is certainly, um, you know, this is area- news. This is news. This is news because, yeah. like, as you know, on, on past podcasts, I've said that the, the cable guys are, in order for the auction to have reached eighty billion dollars, which is a very high number, um, cable was probably in there for ten to fifteen billion. So if if they're not in there, that's new. And I think a lot. I wasn't alone in being wrong about this. I think you know a lot of people thought that was the case. So, so which companies do you think make up that fifty? You know, that, that fifteen million obviously now is in other people's hands. Who's the most likely? Like Twenty people in there. I mean, you've got basically yeah. Verizon. T-Mobile um, and AT&T. And so getting back to your comments before about HBO Max, I kind of wanted to hold back my comments at the time until we're here. If AT&T spent more than 15 to $20 billion, A, there's leverage ratio issues. B, there's like, you know, where's the money going relative to funding HBO Max? Like all these things, you know, there's a there's a give and take in, in all of these items. So what they're not pure play companies. It's not just HBO with its own capital budget. It's a larger company that's got other pulls and demands, is your point. Or what if it's T-Mobile? What, what if T-Mobile is, right. makes up the gap and they spend $20 billion? And then everyone's like, well, what the fuck did you spend $20 billion for if you just bought Sprint that had 100 megahertz of this spec? So whatever. The, those... <laughs> We will talk about that in the point future. Point is, somebody spent eighty billion dollars. Like somehow, that fifteen billion from cable got reallocated, and now what's the reverberation of what that spending implies? So, if someone has more spectrum, let's get back to the basics here. Yep. More spectrum means faster speeds and more capacity. So, to the extent or that five G, wi- to, to the extent that the wireless operators have more spectrum and more speeds. That enables them to go after broadband. So to the extent that cable sat out and are going to execute on a CapEx light strategy, that's great. You're probably not going to be as aggressive in wireless if you don't have your own network. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, but you're still tied to Verizon. But the bigger the bigger issue is now the wireless guys have more assets to go after your bread and butter. And in the case of Charter, like they don't have a media business like Comcast does. Like that Charter is about broadband, right? So... Now you're just let you let the wireless. Go. And by the way, Charter was probably the guy that you know tried to throw a wrench in the works in the C-band auction um, in the first place. Didn't work. This thing got off. So now maybe Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile have got more assets that they're going to use to come after you to go after your broadband customers. The question becomes: At what point does a cable investor worry that any of this wireless spectrum and build out? Is going to impact net ads because obviously cable crushed the wireless or you know crushed the telcos this quarter in broadband net ads. At what point does does an investor 
freak out that those numbers are going to start to reverse because of what's happening in wireless. We're not there yet today. Correct. You're basically saying it's going to happen over the next X years. And the question is, what's X? Well, you're talking about headline risk at this point because it ain't happening in 2021. Sorry, T-Mobile, but you've got enough stuff to do. You're not going to be taking any broadband customers. And Verizon launched their 5G home two years ago and still isn't reporting numbers. So Charter and Comcast- I remember that press release. Yeah, whatever. Comcast Charter, you're totally fine in 2021. C-band starts to get built in 2022. It may not be that this is a real issue for cable until 2023. And maybe no one cares because they say, we'll see what happens between between now and then. But it's the headline risk of, let's say T-Mobile in their third quarter conference call says, oh, we got 200,000 home broadband customers. And like, well, fuck, if T-Mobile can get those customers, imagine what Verizon is going to do when they build out their C-band spectrum next year. Right. For, for right now, cable's looking at it going, oh, we've got wireless covered because we've got a better, a new MVNO with Verizon and we're fine um, and we'll just keep doing the MVNO. But your point is at some point, there's going to be this growing headline risk and fear of actually losing wireline, which is where they make money. They don't make money in their no, wireless things business. Are they make money in wireline. Right. Before, maybe they had a narrative of like, okay, we're going to ride the Verizon MVNO. Then we're going to build our network and we're going to go after this $300 billion wireless market. Now, what's your narrative? You're just an MVNO. With 10% margin, you, you say it, it helps your broadband or your, your video churn, but you never report it. And like, shouldn't you, shouldn't people not even want video anyway? Cause it's this low profit margin thing. So like, why do I care about my churn getting lower? A, you should be getting a rid of those business. Anyway. Okay. So what's your future? What's your narrative? And, and that's the fundamental problem that I think everyone is trying to figure out is like, wh- how are they going to pivot? They've basically tied themselves so closely to broadband. If broadband slows at all. Or not slows is actually okay because it generates tons of cash. It's the reverse. It's the actual losing of broadband subs. The fear of that happening where they start to lose actual subs, that's when people would panic. Right. So, and, and up to this point, that has not been the case. And now it's getting perceived as, as it should as an infrastructure company, right? Our poos are, are going up 5% a year. We just talked about no potential price regulation. So like the only thing that can theoretically derail that is, is 5G. So like, look, we're not going super negative on these names. I'm just saying that like you step out of this auction, you've given more um, tools, more um, weapons for the wireless guys to go after you. And look, it fucking works, dude. 5G like will give you speeds that work in your home i'm sorry but that will happen it's it, yes it's going to take time it, it just but matters speeds will be there yeah and like you can talk about oh well, well we'll see what the applications are in three or four years okay it 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 enables your video it's going to enable your 4k video like maybe virtual reality will will create some incremental bandwidth me but um i think it's something and that i know you love your quest too quest two is awesome <laughs> uh okay let's move on I gave, to i gave my quest away and uh, speaking of businesses that are dying or troubled, um, the video business, as Walt just mentioned, is in a lot of trouble. And I, I do think that, you know, I get another sign. We, we saw Hulu Live and YouTube TV raise price earlier this year. Uh, we've obviously the, been. Is the bundle breaking, Rich? <laughs> I, just say, I thought you said you'd like the bundle. Oh, that's a different bundle. No, it's different a different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, what, what we said was, was it, was it Maloney bundling says, still matters, but yeah. hashtag good luck bundle was about one specific bundle. Who, who was it that, that was that talked about like it's just a matter of bundling and unbundling? Is that was that Malone or who was that famous quote from? Uh, there is a that. famous quote of that all of life is basically about bundling and unbundling. I have to go back and find it. There is a there is a very I famous feel like Andreessen brings that up also. I'm sure he'll take credit for it. 
<laughs> but bundling the, the, is this, eating the world. <laughs> uh, the tweet is, or the, the the tweet from the streamable is Sling TV high Alt is by, eating the world by five dollars for new customers. <laughs> Plans now start at thirty five dollars, and I think if we go back in time, Sling started off as a twenty dollar product, and you know, so essentially over you know, call it four or five years, you've gone up by you know uh, from twenty to thirty five. Uh, we've seen YouTube TV go from 35 to 65. You know, I think Hulu uh, from, I think it was 35 or 40 now up to 65. Like these, the skinny bundles are now fat, lots of channels, but even worse, the prices have gone from relatively skinny to really fat prices. And yes, they're still cheaper than Comcast. They're still cheaper than because, Charter, because, et because of Because of box fees, although there is, Again, the word bundling that sure. goes on um, for the wired MVPDs. But we made this point in the Fubo piece. Virtual MVPDs are becoming MVPDs with better user interfaces. But with less programming, right? Like you're still losing. If you want the best sports experience, you don't choose Fubo. Right. You don't choose My, minus, minus some sports. Yeah. If you care about regional sports networks, you don't want, you know, you don't want these. Although, packages. They don't have everything. Fubo does have like three R three RSNs on it now. I think it does have. So may, may, maybe it really is about sports. Uh, but you, but you don't get the Turner Network, so you, know, just, you, <laughs> you get to miss March half of match March Madness. But in yeah, most markets, service. you do not get RSNs, and you don't get Turner. Yeah, it, but it's just maybe maybe with that what three hundred and fifty million dollar convert that they were able to raise on the back of Wall Street bets. Um, They'll be they'll be able to take a you know some more negative gross margins and add sports. Let's talk about something that I think was confusing to a lot of people this week, which is Modern Family is coming to streaming. It's actually never been streamed before. It's only been sort of locked in the cable bundle. So the tweet is from Frank Pilata, CNN. Um, all 250 episodes of the popular series will be available on two streaming services, Disney's Hulu and NBC Universal's Peacock starting February 3rd. And we had a lot of questions this week saying, what in the world? Like, why would a service, why would both services get it? And people were, you know, coming up with all these theses and, and theories. It's actually relatively simple. And it speaks to just how screwed up the legacy media world is. So USA Network had bought the rights so when you were seeing late at night, you would see reruns of Modern Family on USA Network when they signed that deal with USA Network. So it was owned by Fox, which Disney bought. So Disney owned the rights to Modern Family. Those were sold to USA for cable network syndication late at night on USA Network. But as part of that deal, they blocked streaming rights. And so there was no way for Disney to put it on Hulu because of the legacy deal they had cut with USA Network that went for many more years. And so the only way this could get to streaming was for both sides to agree. And the only reason both sides would agree is we want it on both. And I think it just it's a great example of just how screwed up the media world's licensing is and how legacy deals make it very difficult to do future things and lean into the future for these companies. It'll be a good and now test they both of have it. how important exclusivity is for some of these big titles, though, Rich. It's also confusing I'm for the consumer. Like I can get it in both places. They're both going to be marketing it. Like it's just weird. It seems to me like it's just a transition thing. I mean, it just reminds yeah. me of like how you you we get three episodes on one thing and then the, the library on another. So it's just it's it's a residual of the 
the crazy world that you li- have lived in in terms of media content rights. But I mean, look, the world has obviously changed a lot. So I'm guessing moving forward, as you kind of lap out of these things, that a lot of that stuff probably gets cleaned up, right? Sure. I mean, it'll all take new a deals. long. It'll take a long time now. Yeah. Although there probably are. I mean, this is probably one of a handful of like important library series. Right. I just think it's it's funny to see one of the highest profile comedies of all time appearing on two streaming services. And it's going to be interesting. Like, are they both going to market it? And like, because I, I don't think the marketing is obviously they're each going to want to drive to their own services. And so like you're going to see marketing with it on both things. And it's just confusing to the consumer overall. I think when you see something like this, like, you know, the only place to get Queen's Gambit. Uh, the only place to see Grey's Anatomy reruns, like the, you know, to see the whole library is on Netflix. Like it's just, I think it's just simplistically for the consumer, one place is better. But you're right, Walt. It's going to get worked out. I think, you um, think the what, streaming companies, whatever, cont- I mean, would this be collusion if the streaming companies contact each other and one guy said, "Look, I'll pay you X if you give me exclusivity"? Could something like that happen? Well, I, my guess is, my my guess is that the number for exclusivity was huge here. I, yeah. I think that Hulu probably would have overpaid for exclusivity. My guess is on the flip side, it was better off for NBC to block it and say no, because, you know, think about it. Reruns running on streaming hurts the USA network. Like you're yep. not going to watch these on USA as much. If you can bomb the whole library, you can watch the whole big bang library now on HBO max. You don't need to watch it on T- TBS anymore. So this would have been a direct negative to USA. And so the, the, the chit for doing that was we need it on Peacock. We need to do something to help and offset that pain. And it's not just about money. Uh, Although they do have a responsibility to the other stakeholders in, sure. in those content, right? So, well, they, they probably made more in total by selling it to both. Right. It's really made just as much to your point on they have a fiduciary duty. They didn't make less money in total. Um, I'm just saying somebody would have paid for exclusivity and paid a big number for exclusivity, and they probably just split that between the two. So there's a tweet from Fierce Video saying Verizon on their conference call this week said that over two thirds of its Disney Plus promo subs kept the service. Um, Everyone went they- gaga about this. I don't, I don't really. What's the context for two thirds being good? Because Disney had an amazing investor day that uh, launched a bunch of content like. Why wasn't it eighty percent? Like, what, what what makes two thirds good? First of all, well, it's funny. I think most people looked at the two thirds and said, "Hey, if they did, you know, I think you know, well, you, you've certainly from your conversations believe the number is probably somewhere around eight million Verizon subscribers took the the Disney offer um, in year one out of maybe you know fifteen plus million that could have done it, and so that's a pretty big number. And but the the fear was, hey could that 8 million drop to, you know, two or three or four, like how big, I think fear was that there was going to be a lot more churn. So I think two thirds, while you could certainly say losing a third of your subs is not a good thing. I think the belief was, you know, two thirds was a meaningful enough number, but you know, it's somewhat skewed reality is remember Verizon also did a new promo where they're giving away now a triple play bundle. If you upgrade to a certain unlimited plan, the Disney triple play is now included. And so what we don't know is, how many people upgraded, how many people just stayed and paid even after the first year promo. My guess is if it wasn't for the new promo, it probably would have been a 50% or more churn. I'm embarrassed. I don't know exactly how this works, but I I believe that the typical way for a telecom company to do this is if you've opted in for something, um, it's just going to start showing up on your bill. And this is like those additional administrative fees. As as someone getting the bill, I can tell you. (laughs) 
Right. From so Verizon, say, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to make allegations to Verizon, <laughs> but I'm guessing that's probably how they did it. So you either moved up. And to They a sent an premium. email out saying you're going to start being built. Whatever. And I. Right. Going back to the administrative fees that we've talked about in the past, they also sent an email out saying like, oh, terms and things have changed. All of a sudden, there's a little dollar bill that appears on your on your fees that raises $2 billion of revenue and EBITDA for it's, the company. My point is, going back to like, in that context, is two-thirds a great number? Because everyone on the Twitter was like gushing about like two-thirds being this great number when it's like an opt-out type of, like it's an opt, yeah, you'd have to opt out of it after you've already effectively joined the trial. So... I don't know. I think, look, the bigger picture here is um, like the the role that wireless operators are playing in terms of the bundle and and how many of these, and you, you, you guys were talking about earlier about like whatever WWE and like, are they part of Peacock? Because if, if Verizon looks at this, they're probably not going to add, no offense, Brandon, but WWE as well as one of the things, right? They're going to say, look, we have oh. Disney for our scripted content. We've got Discovery Plus for our unscripted content. Exactly, which Maybe is why it makes sense correct. for more and more consolidation. Uh, right. so of, I don't think that, that Ver- I don't think Verizon or T-Mobile or whoever are going to add a second script, scripted content. I could be wrong. I mean, just numbers. So what are they going to add then? Well, let's get to that for because next, they're creating but- a bundle. They're trying to create a bundle, right? Correct. So, but let's just just some quick stats for our listeners. The premium unlimited bundle, which is where they're getting this extra money. Um, is now 20% um, of of the unlimited base. And that's up from 11% at the end of 19 and 4% at the end of 18. So you're talking about a company- So that's a big deal. But you're talking about a company that the the, the net ads are declining, declined 65% in the fourth quarter. Our 21 prediction is they're going to have the lowest number of wireless net ads. They need this to hit their target of 3% revenue growth. So the question then, Brandon, is what else, if they're at 20%, to get that to 30, 40, 50, and let's say Disney is not enough for, and, and Discovery is not enough. Like, what can they add in uh, gaming, which would be another major bucket that could uh, that could attract people to higher premium unlimited plans? Okay. Well, I think you're talking about Verizon specifically because they yeah, already or, have. Or anyone. They, they already, well, for, for Verizon, they already right. have um, a, a PlayStation Plus deal um, okay. where that's kind enough. of included in the bundle. And look, every game. Kind of, not every game, but tons of games have subscription elements to them now in the in the name of battle passes, Fortnite's battle pass, um, Roblox call, premium, call, right? Like you can be a Roblox call, premium call, subscriber. That's yes. There's a subscription in Roblox, Call of Duty Twitch subscription. subscription. You can be a Twitch subscriber, there's, right? Like they get there's a Twitch subscription. Ton, well, that's, you know, part of Amazon's bundle, right? With Prime. Sure. Um, but yeah, any of these games, any of these games are fair game, no pun intended, for adding a battle pass to the bundle. Why not? Just add more value in a different category that reaches sort of a different consumer that might not care as much about, you know, video services. Right, but but, so how many of those are out there? Because I would guess, I mean, T-Mobile is running this strategy. How many what, are out there or how many well, are look, out there? Paramount matter, Plus is, right? look, Paramount Plus is coming out a shortly. A lot of scale around them. Yeah. Uh, Paramount Plus is going to have a good amount of scale in terms of content, but it doesn't. It's not different than what they already offer across the Disney Triple Play bundle. So my guess is that's is out. They don't than need what, that. Is it different than what HBO? What's what AT and T has with effectively including HBO Max and their unlimited? Uh, I think it's. I think it's sort of an, a direct overlap with what they're trying to do. Probably about with a T-Mobile? little less ambition. T Mobile. It's actually. It is sort of different 
the news and sports elements of it are, and, and even sort of the kids elements is a little, I mean, look, there's some elements of Netflix in there, but I think you probably could argue that there's probably more benefit in terms of how it could be, you know, logical for T-Mobile. And remember, T-Mobile already was interested in Quibi, which was obviously very different than than Netflix. So maybe T-Mobile. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if that was the, the direction they went. Um, again, to round out the programming. I mean, you certainly can talk about the NFL programming that CBS has on Paramount Plus. You can talk about news. I mean, all of those things. You know, you could certainly see how they could matter to a T-Mobile if they're trying to fight these bigger content bundles from their peers. And what about the cable operators as they kind of continue to grow their wireless business? Do they follow the same path? It's harder only because the cable guys already think they pay these companies enough. They already see it as we pay Paramount or we pay Viacom. We pay Discovery. We're not going to pay you twice. You should be giving this to us for free. We're not going to go out and help you with your D to C, which hurts our video business and give you more money or give you more help. None of the cable operators have wanted to help any of these streaming companies' ambitions at all. So I I doubt it. I guess anything's possible, but I doubt it. So their bundle will be obviously more on just bundling it with the home broadband, right? And just stick with that, something that T-Mobile and they can't do, I guess, now until maybe 5G enables them to offer a wireless version of home broadband. But sticking with Discovery Plus, just because obviously that's been the newest addition to the Verizon bundle, um, what's, I guess, surprised us most about Discovery Plus is that they had this big analyst day and they talked about a lot of big shows. Bobby and Jada was one of the shows they really talked about. Um, they talked about um, Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, which was she's doing a, uh, Joanna's doing a cooking show. And they talked about sort of those being the highlights of the programming coming to Discovery Plus. Yet what we noticed over the last couple of weeks of looking at what's trending on Discovery Plus it's actually been all shows that air on TV, Hometown from HGTV, Gold Rush on Discovery, Evil Lives Here on ID, Dead Files, Travel Channel, Paula Zahn uh, on the case on ID, and Dr. Pimple Popper from TLC. <laughs> is that really you, a show? Oh my God. It really is. My kids actually like that show. Dr. Um, Pimple Popper. Oh, Jesus. Uh, but, is but, it, but is it? Yes, it yes. It is exactly is, what you think it is. It is exactly. It's exactly what you think. But 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 the, the story here is it, it, it almost makes you think of like w- one is the is the digital experience of cable TV so bad that people are literally paying twice and willing to pay for easier access to this content? Or is there a whole group of cord cutters that have cut the cord, but actually like this sort of, you know, tr- you know, true crime and, you know, reality TV content? And how big is that number? But it, it clearly shows that discovery, maybe they don't have to spend as much on on original programming because the catalog stuff and the stuff that they've already been creating actually is resonating. I mean, it's the exact opposite of like Disney Plus. It's like, you know, the number one show right now is is WandaVision. And, you know, for you know Netflix, it was Queen's Gambit. Like it was all the originals. Is that sort of what's driving excitement? I just think it's interesting that none of the originals is driving any any amount of volume of viewership on Discovery Plus. And it's early. But it's definitely surprised me in looking at looking at the numbers. Yeah, so far. I mean, the fact that they don't have it though could limit the the amount of total subscribers that they're going to get. So Correct. they're they're the only subscribers maybe a smaller service be because of it who really care about that catalog. Yep, that's it. Uh, that may be the downside of this, and show that they've got to spend a heck of a lot more than the types of shows they're creating yeah. to really move the needle on on the TAM. Uh, let's talk about sports betting. 
Um, we've got a whole bunch of tweets here, Brandon. Um, oh, all right. of them sort of, you know, like, I mean, I guess, you know, Barstool and Penn is something we've been focused do you, on. Do you, do you want to read them all? Sure. You, you, want ahead, me read to, you want me yeah, to read them for you? And then you, you, you could start off talking about them. John O'Ran seems to have made it another time into the podcast this week. The Athletic signed a multi-year deal that makes Bet MGM the site's exclusive betting partner in the U.S. Um, then we have another one from John O'Ran, a third for the week. Entercom is planning a sports gambling radio network called and then there's nothing there. Um, plans are to relaunch Denver's KEZWAM as the bet and launch a station LA via 93.1 HD3. And then Darren Ravel, points bet, has hired Paige Sparanic to be the on air talent for the sports book, as well as to take on a big role on their digital media team. Sporanic has more than 2.9 million followers on Instagram. So I guess we're talking again with what we talked about last week, which is sort of this collision of, of content and sports betting and how they're going to kind of go hand in hand. And why are they doing it, Brandon? I mean, it's obvious, but why are they doing it? Differentiation. Yeah. I mean, and brand loyalty. The, 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 the other word would in, be in commoditization. A, well, yeah. <laughs> right. It's a glass commodity half business. Full, glass half yeah. empty. <laughs> no, no. You, you have a commodity business. Betting on any one of these platforms is exactly the same. It makes no difference. Yeah. You're going to get essentially the same economics wherever you go. And so the in, instead of competing with higher and higher offers to get you to come over here, they're trying to use content. Kind of reminds me of what's going on in your wireless wars, Walt, <laughs> that we just no, talked about. Is like, okay, all these services are basically the same to the consumer, so we'll try and win them over with content. Content is a differentiating tool, not necessarily a business on its own. We're seeing that over and over Whatever. and over again. <laughs> um. This was sort of a surprise this week. Uh, we definitely weren't expecting this. Sarah Needleman's got a tweet. Twitter is buying newsletter creation service review in a move reflecting interest among social media companies and giving content creators tools to make money. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people had talked about Twitter buying Substack. There was a lot of speculation. And rather than buying the, the sort of the industry leader and probably much more expensive company, I think Twitter's basically saying, look, we already have this large audience of, of influential people who are creating newsletters. Why don't we just bring it in-house? We don't need to buy the biggest player. We just need to enable this functionality. And we'll basically give the creators more to do and more ways of making yeah. money from it. It seems they, they have a huge, smart. They have a huge funnel of writers on their platform and just make it easier for them to to use Twitter for everything. No need to go out and buy and overspend on Substack. I think people are going to love this. I mean, assuming it's easy to do and it's like you just with your same Twitter ID, you can just literally set up a quick newsletter and maybe you even embed tweets. I mean, I think about like, you know, adding tweets and, and using that as a conversation, much like we use tweets to, to drive the conversation on this podcast, setting up newsletters and using tweets to do it seems it was totally logical yeah. and, and a sort of an a, if, make if it they easy can execute. It right. will, it's all it about should, product. It should be great. Yeah, I love it. I love it. 
Um, let's just do our last slide. Uh, where we've got the music industry. This came out overnight. Universal Music IPO coming in early 22 now at the latest. So that seems to infer, Brandon, that it's possible it could actually come this year, which you know, I, I think six months ago, it sounds like it is coming this year. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it is, which again, I think about six months ago, there was news on the tape that, you know, they were planning a 2022 IPO. And now it feels like we're inching closer to this being sooner than later. And, you know, obviously Warner Music's been a good stock in the public market since that went public, uh, despite the fact that the music industry has got a lot of, you know, challenges right now. There's obviously no live yeah. music, as we've talked about on this podcast. There's less TV and film production than there was, especially with all the COVID stuff that's kind of, you know, rearing its head again. So there's right. a lot of pressure on this business, but the the, the, the multi-year story has gotten exciting. Yeah, but there's other kind of growth vectors that are available. Um, we wrote about um, Roblox integrating music and the different yep. opportunities for um, publishers, labels. Warner to- Music invested in Roblox. They They did. And there's going to be tons of revenue opportunities there. We've seen a lot of the growth um, for for these companies come out of digital media as it is. So it's it's probably a good time. Yeah, and you. In addition to the broader subscription story, which yeah, look, I think the broader subscription story. It keeps growing, but I think it's it's the TikToks and the Snapchats and the Facebooks. And as you said, the whole gaming world, all of that is just incremental. I mean, we didn't even talk about Peloton and you know home fitness and all of these devices. Everyone is paying more and more for music in new ways that isn't coming directly out of the consumer's pocket. And that's where it makes it interesting. Um, you know, obviously, it's going to be a tougher short term, just given the challenges um, that we discussed. But the, the multi-year story is certainly getting more and more interesting for music. I think the only challenge for investors is, is you know, the valuations are pretty pricey. Like these things reflect, you know, a, a you know, a, a much better music business than we had a few years ago. Uh, we have outro music. Mark, actually, Mark Kelly sent in his choice. Yeah. Ah. Biggie. You can go out to this. I think um, we've done some, like, sort of uh, 90s outros a couple of times now. Well, that was episode 41. Have a great weekend, everyone. We didn't even get the music really going. You want to keep it going? Good song. That's episode 41. We didn't even get to the best part. Yeah, we're not doing it, so that's enough. Okay, bye. Have a good weekend.